You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading for this afternoon's sermon is taken from the first chapter of 2 Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from our past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The text for the sermon this afternoon is also taken from the first chapter of Second Peter, the verses 5 through 9. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. 
For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his letter to an early church, the Apostle Peter strives to make them understand that they cannot simply stop at believing in Jesus Christ. They must produce certain qualities from that faith. They must produce fruit. To these early believers, Peter gives two reasons for this exhortation. In the first place, Peter clearly shows the richness that God has bestowed on believers in His grace. He has given them everything they need for life and godliness. He has given them very great and precious promises. He enables them to participate in the divine nature, escaping the corruption of the world. Believers, then, are called to respond appropriately. They're called to respond abundantly. Secondly, Peter also makes clear to them that time is running out. Christ has told Peter that he will take him from the church shortly, so he will no longer be there to teach them. But more generally, as Peter writes later in this letter, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, so believers must be prepared at all times. Near the end of this letter, chapter 3, verse 11, Peter asks the believers, What kind of people will you be? Knowing what God has done, and knowing that time is short, how will these believers lead their lives? How will we, brothers and sisters, live our lives? What kind of people will we be? I bring to you the word of the Lord with the theme, Through Peter, Christ urges believers to cultivate the good fruit in abundance. We will see the good fruit, the personal result, and the serious warning. When we look at the text before us this afternoon, the very first words show the significance of what Peter is writing. He says, For this very reason, what he writes in this text is the unavoidable conclusion of what he has just written to the believers. His argument could be summarized as, because of what God has richly and abundantly done for us, therefore we must make every effort to add to our faith. Before we see what he urges the believers to add to their faith, it is important to see how he expects believers to add these fruits. He tells the believers to Make every effort. We are to apply all diligence and all haste. Peter is making clear that what is to be done is not a simple task, but something that must be worked at. We cannot expect that as we grow older, these things will become easier for us. On the contrary, we must strive every day of our lives to add these qualities to our faith just like we must exercise regularly to stay healthy. Adding these fruits to faith is not like riding a bicycle, a skill that once you have mastered, you have a very hard time forgetting. 
Rather, adding this fruit to our faith is something that we must constantly work at, something that we must continually strive for every moment of our lives. We must also realize that when Peter says to make every effort to add to your faith, he does not mean that this in any way adds to our salvation. We are still only saved through faith alone, based on the one sacrifice of our Lord and Savior. Rather, what Peter urges us to do is to respond in that faith to the rich and abundant blessings that God has given to us. It is the thankful response of a saving faith rather than an addition to the faith which we have already been given. As Peter has made it very clear, such a response is made possible only through God himself. It is a gracious gift which he has bestowed upon us that we are now enabled to respond in faith in such a way. It is never something that we ourselves do. The language that Peter uses here shows how much fruit we are to produce. He uses words in this section that suggest great abundance, great richness. In verse 2, he greets the believers with the phrase, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God. In verse 3, he writes that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And in verse 4, he writes of God's very great and precious promises. In our text, he begins with the words, For this very reason, make every effort. In verse 8, Peter states that believers should possess these qualities in increasing measure. It is not enough simply to add this fruit to your faith. We are to possess more and more of it, of it to an abundance throughout our lives. But let us never forget what a gracious God we have who not only commands us to add this fruit, but also enables us to fulfill this command. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But more than this, we also have a God who forgives us through Christ when we fall short of His expectations for us. This is one of His very great and precious promises on which we can depend. What then is this fruit that Peter is talking about? Peter writes in verse 5 that to our faith we are to add goodness. To the ancient Greeks... This word meant excellence in achievement. As an illustration, we can think of something that is common to both the Greeks and to us, the Olympic Games, for which Vancouver seems to be busily preparing itself. In these games, the athletes strive to be that best at whatever sport they're competing in. In the modern winter games, the speed skaters want to excel at speed skating. The downhill skiers in the slalom they all want the gold medal to show that they are the best at what they do. Peter, however, does not use this word in such a broad sense. He narrows it down and means moral excellence. He exhorts the believers 
to lead lives of outstanding virtue. In his first letter, the second chapter, he writes in verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the kind of goodness that is demanded of believers. It is easy to say this, but as we all know, it is not so easy to do. No matter how hard we work at leading righteous lives, we are painfully aware that we constantly fall short. Every day again we realize our sin and our need to constantly ask God forgiveness. We are realize our need for our Savior Jesus Christ and our need for the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Thanks be to God who has granted to us the righteousness of Christ as if it were our own. In Him we can begin to add such goodness to our faith. To this goodness we are to add knowledge. If you were to read through this letter of Second Peter, you might notice that he often speaks about knowledge. It could even be considered a minor theme in his letter. The second chapter of this letter, Peter spends some, quite some time preparing his readers for false teachers who will come in among them. These false teachers blaspheme, he says, in matters which they do not understand. In chapter 3, he writes that scoffers will come, people who mock the fact that Christ will come again. These people, Peter writes, have forgotten that in the past God had always fulfilled his promises and that God has the power and ability to do exactly what he says. They do not have true and proper knowledge. And this leads these false teachers, these scoffers, into wrong lifestyle. They follow their own evil desires, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. False knowledge, Peter is saying, leads to wrong action. Believers, on the other hand, are to have true knowledge if they are to lead a life characterized by the fruit of faith. We must be fully aware of what God has done in the past and what He has promised and what He does now in our lives. We can know this because we have the testimony of God's apostles, His eyewitnesses. Unlike the false teachers, the apostles did not bring cleverly invented stories, but simply taught the word, the truth of Christ. From this knowledge, we are enabled to produce the fruit of our faith in Christ. To knowledge, Peter writes, believers are to add self-control. This is the ability to be the master of your thoughts, your desires, your actions, your impulses, all things that we possess. Contrary to what the culture around wants us to think, in Christ we are able to become masters of these things and not slaves to our own desires. We are not at the mercy of whatever impulses pop into our minds, doomed to either repress them or fulfill them. 
through the Holy Spirit, we have the option and ability to control these desires. There are many illustrations which could be used here. We could speak of impatience, frustration, lust, many other things which we experience throughout our lives. But the illustration of anger is probably the most widely experienced issue of self-control. We all have moments when we get frustrated and lash out of anger. Parents get frustrated when dealing with teenagers, and teenagers get frustrated when dealing with their parents. Young children become angry when things do not go their way. Or we can even think of how often or how many of us have gotten angry at things like our computer, even when we know that it's not their fault. We cannot simply say that this is out of our control and just live with it. We are expected to try to change since we have both been commanded to change and have been given the necessary resources to do just that. As Christians living in Christ with the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we can change and are expected to. Through his Apostle Peter, Christ exhorts his followers to cultivate self-control in their lives. We cannot just ignore our responsibility in this matter and simply lash out of anger whenever we feel the need. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but most of what we feel is not this. Most of our anger is sin. In a situation of frustration, it is easy to become angry. It is hard to be self-controlled. Even with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we often fall. We often become angry when we shouldn't. But when we do fall, we know that God will forgive us if we ask. And if we continue to try to control our anger, to act in a loving, controlled, and godly way. To self-control, Peter adds that we are to add perseverance. We are called to be able to stand firm in the midst of trials. Peter does not sugarcoat the life of faith. He is no health and wealth preacher telling us that God is going to bless us beyond our imaginations if only we let him. No, Peter lets the believers know that we can expect hardships and troubles in our lives. From persecution for the faith to simple personal setbacks, believers are expected to stand firm. If we stick with the example of anger, we can see how this works out in our everyday lives. We strive to be self-controlled. We strive to control our anger, but we fail. And fail we will, for if we are honest with ourselves, we know that practice does not make perfect. In this life, we will never be perfect. But if we persevere, if we continue to strive in the face of setback after setback, we are producing the fruit of faith. We are standing firm in that faith. And this expectation becomes all the more easier to bear if we realize that we are not persevering on our own strength. We are never alone. 
but are constantly accompanied and aided by Christ, who promised to be with us always. To perseverance, Peter exhorts us to add godliness. Now, it is odd to see godliness listed here, for is not the rest of this list a part of godliness? Do not these things come out in a godly walk of life? While godliness does refer to how we live before God and those surrounding us, leading a life that is worthy of God's name, it also refers to an attitude that we can have, a way of thinking. It refers to an attitude of respect and honor towards God. And out of this attitude, we act. Godliness can be seen as the mountain spring from which our actions flow. If our godliness is shallow and small, then it will not amount to much in our life. But if it is deep and vast, then it will cause our walk of life to be one of great piety and devoutness. We will have a flood of godly behavior in our life, not from our own power or initiative, but arising from the gracious gift of God who has given us everything we need for life and godliness. To godliness is added brotherly kindness or brotherly love. Just as godliness is an attitude of respect and honor toward God, brotherly kindness is an attitude of respect and love towards those in the family of faith. This is the kind of attitude that desires the best for our brothers and sisters, stirring us to use our gifts for their benefit. We are able to love those who we might not otherwise want to. We can love the unlovable. Just as Jesus spent his time among the sinners, the sick, the outcasts, even going so far as to touch and heal lepers, we can do the same in our lives. We can act out of love and humility toward those who would otherwise be overlooked or shunned. To this attitude of brotherly kindness is added love. Just as faith is the starting point of this list, the foundation upon which all the rest are built, love is the capstone, that quality which holds the whole building together. Here we must be careful with our words, for love is one of those words that has been hollowed and misunderstood for the most part by the world around us. When Peter says that we are to add love to our faith, he does not mean the worldly kind of love that is directed towards one thing or another. Rather, Christians are called to be loving rather than called to simply love. The kind of love that Peter is talking about comes out of a loving personality and is far richer for it. It is the kind of love that we mean when we say that God is love. For out of His love, God loved us while we were still His enemies and sent His Son to die for us on the cross that He might reconcile us to Himself. In fact, all of the fruits that Peter lists here add a depth and richness to our faith. For there their possession makes each believer productive and effective 
in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. Which brings us to the second point, the personal result. As we noted earlier, this fruit of faith is not something that can simply be hauled out whenever we need it. It needs to be constantly and continually worked at. It is not like riding a bicycle, but more like spiritual physiotherapy. These qualities need to be exercised in our life so that they do not become weak and useless. We need to pursue them with all diligence. It is only through exercising these fruits that we can possess them in the abundance that Peter urges. It is only in pursuing these qualities and cultivating this fruit of faith in our lives that we are kept from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That this is the intended result of cultivating this fruit is made clear by the emphasis that Peter puts here. He phrases it in negative terms. He says in verse 8, If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than simply saying, if you have these fruits, you will be productive and effective. The missing piece of this statement, as Peter has it, is the assumption that we are to be this way. The reasons why have been given earlier. Because we have been made able to be this way, and because the time is so short. We do not have any time to play around with our faith. It is imperative, Peter says, in these last days to be productive and effective with the gifts we have been granted. This is not a general productivity. Here, it is not a case of being blessed in whatever you put your hands to. Rather, this fruit makes us productive and effective in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Similar to the way that this list began, flowing from its foundation in faith, the fruit leads to an intimate, personal knowledge of Christ. The word knowledge here is not simply a matter of the head, but a very personal, deep knowledge, which is stressed when Peter writes, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a knowledge that Jesus Christ touches every aspect of our lives, and we need to live in Him if we are to live at all. This is the kind of knowledge that can say, my only comfort in life and death is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. God has given us the beginnings of this knowledge, for faith is His gift to us. All who believe in Jesus know Him personally. By cultivating this fruit, we will grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, grow in our knowledge of Him as our Lord and Savior, our only comfort. The more we cultivate this fruit, the more we come to know Jesus in a very deep and personal way because we become aware of our inability to produce this fruit on our own. The more we strive to produce this fruit, 
the more we realize that we rely on the gracious gifts of God, the more we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, and the more we desire the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Cultivating this fruit opens our eyes to the incomparable riches that we have in Christ. It opens our eyes to what God has done in our lives, and it opens our eyes to His very great and precious promises. The more we strive, the more we attain, but this striving will never be completed in this life. To further emphasize the urgent point that he is making, Peter explicitly draws out what he means not to produce the fruits of faith, which brings us to the third point, the serious warning. Here we again see the imperative nature of Peter's urging believers to cultivate this fruit. He says in verse 9 that if a person does not have this fruit, they are nearsighted and blind. In the time in which we live, there are many opportunities and resources available to blind people. While they cannot live as if they never had this disability, they can lead effective and productive lives. In the world of the first century, this was very different. Blind people would not have had near the possibility that they do now. If they did not have a family to care for them, they would most likely have ended up as beggars, such as the blind people we meet in the Gospels. To be blind in the first century and the ones that followed would mean leading a life in which you could do very little and in which you would rely on the grace and kindness of others. Being nearsighted is not as bad as being blind. I do not know how many of you wear glasses or contact lenses, but it's obvious that I do. If I were to take my glasses off, everything that is further than six inches in front of my face becomes blurry. And the further away it is, the more blurry it becomes. With my glasses off, I can see very little. My world is considerably smaller than someone who has near-perfect vision. This is the image that Peter is after here. Not only are these people blind to the truth of their own life, they are also so near-sighted that they cannot see anything but their immediate surroundings. They cannot know Jesus. They are doomed to lead a life of spiritual isolation. Not knowing our Savior is being blind and nearsighted. Blind to the fact that in and of ourselves we can do nothing and nearsighted so that we do not see what God has already done for us. Christ urgently warns his people against becoming ineffective and unproductive. With all of the riches and abundance that God has blessed us with in his promises, through his Son and in his Holy Spirit, and with how little time yet remains, we cannot afford to be blind. We cannot afford to be nearsighted. We have to be effective and productive. We must take every opportunity to cultivate the fruit of faith, and in so doing, come closer and closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us every day ask ourselves Peter's question, 
with all that God has done for us, brothers and sisters, promised to us and enabled in us, knowing how short the days are, what kind of people will we be? What kind of person will I be? Will I become blind and nearsighted, forgetting the grace and promises of God? Or will I cultivate the fruit of faith planted in me to gain a greater and more intimate knowledge of my Lord Jesus Christ and my utter dependence on Him? Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.